In this episode of the podcast, we meet Oscar Ramos, who is a partner at SOSB, a venture capital firm located in China. Oscar is an experienced manager with a strong technical background, innovative business vision, and entrepreneurial experience. He has worked for multinationals and innovative startups, and has 10 plus years of operational experience in mainland China, an extensive network in TMT industry across Europe and Asia. It's 7:30 a.m. in New York City. It's it's uh, what time over there? 8:30. It's 7:30 p.m. in Shanghai. So we're exactly 12 hours different. It's just I'm drinking a coffee and you're drinking what? A beer? I'm grabbing a beer. Yeah, we have craft right. beer in the office. Um, so it's happy hour time. Um, happy hour people move somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, some some they continue work working. Some of them are uh, going to have their lives exercise. Always very important. And I'm here mm-hmm. like. Very, very happy to be able to connect with all of you guys. Yeah, and the good thing is, you know, I'm a morning person, so you know, I think we're both uh, both energetic here. Um, but you know, you're with SOSV. We're actually, you know, you and I are looking at a deal together that I'm excited about. Um, so before we get, you know, deeper into, you know, the portfolio companies you guys are looking at and um, your structure, you know, I'd love to learn a little more about you. You know, where you grew up, where you studied, and um, how you ended up in, uh, you know, SOSV. Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm Spanish. Um, I was born in Madrid, uh, raised in Barcelona. I spent a third of my life in uh, in Barcelona. Then mm-hmm. I moved back to Madrid. We spent another third of my life, and uh, and then the last third I actually spent it in Shanghai. So it's been uh, it's been 13 years for me already in uh, in Shanghai. There's also a couple of years that I I live in other part in other parts of the world. Um, so, but I spent most of my initial like years of my life. In um in Spain where I, I mean I went to school and uh, and um, and then eventually once I started I then I worked there always in a relatively international environment in, in R and D for uh, for multinationals mm-hmm. and um and then in one of my one of my roles where I was working in like Telefonica in the R and D department uh, I had like that opportunity to start working on something called business model innovation uh, so we had a bunch of engineers working on um on something that was pretty cool like new new uh, um new radio frequency technologies for uh, that could potentially enable new products that itself was like hey it's not just about the technology it's actually about what you build so that moved me closer to the user and made me think well it doesn't matter if you can build it if nobody wants it but yeah. what really blew my mind was when we had to think about yeah you know as an operator we need to think about everything that will potentially be profitable. So sure. that was in the early 2000, uh, in 2001, I think, or 2000. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, so we had this bunch of engineers that already had like, oh, fuck, it's not about the technology only. We need to think about the business. And I thought it was uh, interesting enough. So I started to look into this idea of business model. Um, and nobody was really working on that. Uh, I didn't find anything that was interesting until I found um, like a, PhD student that was working on trying to identify the different elements of a business model. And I found that explanation super clear, super interesting. That was Alex Osterwalder. That was, uh, I think at that time, the business model campus as a concept didn't exist. So that was, that opened my mind. And uh, and from there, I jumped from multinationals to startups. And uh, well, the whole thing didn't never stop. So you work in startup, then you want to build your own startup. Um, moved to China to find the opportunity and, uh, and work in a, in, a, in a market where there were a lot of options. And, uh, why did well, you move to China out of all the other countries? What, what you know, triggered your decision to move there specifically? So this is, this, this is kind of like um, very dangerous family dinners where, um, where you're talking about everything. Sure. Uh, it, was, it was like a, a Christmas 2007 mm-hmm. And um, and I was, so in my family, I'm kind of like a like a black sheep. No, everybody in my family studied like humanities or, or law, psychology, yeah. and they all they're basically almost all of them are public servants. Sure. They believe a lot in public service, so it is it is great. But yeah. um, but I'm kind of like on the opposite side. So I studied engineering, mm-hmm. and uh, and I wanted always to play more on the innovation side. Sure. So I was having that dinner dinner with uh, with my uncle, and uh, my uncle is is kind of like very, very important person in, in, in mm-hmm. terms of influencing me. So he's an engineer and he's an entrepreneur um, himself. Right. And so he was also a black dinner. sheep as well out of the family. 
Well, in his family, uh, in his family is different thing. So he's okay. he's the he's my my father's sister husband. Um, so we're we're related, but it's not like sure. blood relation. So his family is more of an entrepreneurial family yeah. versus your family that's a little more conservative. Yeah, yeah, okay. and uh, and and basically he said, you know, I was was talk, talking about moving to the U.S. and he said, mm -hmm. well, if I were your age, I'll move to China. Wow. And uh, he never came to China ever mm -hmm. in his life. Um, he just thought, you know, that's interesting. One week after that dinner, um, me and and, uh, and back in the day, my 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 girlfriend, we decided to make the move, and we, sure. we it took us like a month to basically wrap up everything and move to China to build something. Uh, we don't know what, we don't know, yeah. we don't know anything about it, sure. but uh, that was what propelled the change. And well, and where history. you moved, were they, you know, the region where you moved to in China, did they speak English or did you have to, you know, actually learn the language? So it, I moved to Shanghai, which probably okay. is one of the cities where uh, English is more accessible. But I yeah, can tell so. you that, that the level of English that is spoken right now is not the same. So I moved here before the Olympics, which mm -hmm. kind of like change and, 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 and improve the, the overall uh, level of English across the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the expo in 2010 also changed in Shanghai. So basically, I had to learn a lot of Chinese to be able to get by. I am um, actually a, more, a, lot of, a lot of my Chinese was learned back in the day. I also like to be able sure. to be self-sufficient and do things on, on my own. Yeah. So is uh, Chinese a difficult language to master, but um, it's actually not that difficult to be able to get by. Because yeah. grammar is very simple, and, uh, and there's a lot of words that are kind of like generic enough that you can use for a lot of uh, practice. So and, you speak uh, and then, fluent you know, Mandarin, pretty much. I I don't speak fluent Mandarin, but mm -hmm. I can basically get by and do whatever I want. Sure. So my first, my first, I love food. So my first motivation to learn to read was to be able to go to restaurants to that didn't food, have English yeah. menus. Yeah. So I could. So I knew I knew the the, the character for for a chicken, but then mm -hmm. are you eating like chicken legs, chicken wings, chicken what? Like, because China has a very rich cuisine where they eat everything. Yeah. So you might end up having like a very weird type of, uh, <laughs> of dish. It's chicken, but you don't want to know what is a part. <laughs> yeah, sure. So so that was kind of like what, what made, made me doing that. And now like for uh, your life is way easier. If you can use Chinese apps, your life yeah. is much better. So, like, so you can you read, can you read Mandarin as well? Yeah, I can read. Okay. I can type. Yeah. Um, I can. I can. I can participate in my my kids. Uh, so my kids go to local schools, so I can participate sure. in the meetings, which is what probably my my latest achievement and, and mm -hmm. what I feel the most proud of. I yeah. can go to the parent parent teacher meetings and, uh, <laughs> and be able to participate and understand eighty percent of what they talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's amazing. I mean, it's uh, you know, there's just a very rich you know ecosystem there and. You know, just you, you can just imagine all the tech companies that are booming over there. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity. I guess, why did your uncle recommend to go to China? Was there something specific um, or a specific reason? Or was it just that, you know, he just thought it was exciting and he just saw a lot of opportunity there? Was he doing business there? He was not really doing business here. I mean, he was sourcing a little bit from China, but never, never came here, never had any kind of Got business. It. But the way he thought about it is, you know, the U.S. is, is obviously, uh, I mean, we're talking about 13 years ago, sure. and, uh, and even today is a place where, I mean, I've been, I, I traveled back to the U.S. in the past, I had yeah. a lot of connections, I, I had yeah. a lot of dealings with, mm -hmm. um, with the U.S., yeah. but, uh, but very limited exposure to Asia. Mm -hmm. So his point was like, you know, you go there, um, whatever you do, you're going to get exposure to an, an area of the world that is rising right now. It's racing and yeah. it's going to be playing an important role in the future, yes or yes. Um, I don't think... I. I mean, I, he maybe was the visionary. I, mm -hmm. I wasn't. Uh, I just sure. came here because I thought it was a, a, an interesting option. And I thought, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. Like a couple of years into the future, if things don't work out, you can always come to come back to Europe and, you know, Europe will be here. Then the crisis hit in 2000 yeah. and, and Europe was not really there. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and then I discovered, like, the opportunity here. No? And it was, uh, mm -hmm. it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, that was a early stages of the startup community where, where it was so easy to get access to people. It was so easy to get connected with people. Um, the, the startup the English speaking ex, uh, startup community was relatively small mm -hmm. and, and you could like hang out with the, with the, like the American or, or overseas educated um, founders of some startups that they wanted to play football. You know? And they thought, Hey, we've got the Spanish superstar to play in the league mm -hmm. where you have like all the, all the top, 
uh, tech companies in, in Beijing that were playing football together. No? So sure. that was like a very that was like a very interesting um, mm-hmm. uh, like opportunity. And and then you were able to see the speed of things, how everything has ch- was changing so so fast. Yeah. I mean, I came here and remember first time I tried to buy tickets online, it was impossible to pay online. So I had to book the tickets online. Mm-hmm. wait for a person to come to my home with the tickets and then i had to pay that person cash that was no. the only way to pay online if you look at china today and digital yeah. payments the, the the way they 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 leapfrog everything and, uh, and, and well, how everything's advanced mobile first are. pretty much right yeah it's, it's mobile for first is digital yeah. cashless payments perfectly integrated into society so but that i mean that for me that that change was a year so yeah. the world is realizing about this right now, but uh, mm-hmm. but in a year everything went from a uh, from yeah you can, you have to pay this person with with cash mm-hmm. to you had digital payments enabled in a in a quite secure way very very flexible that were accessible in lots of different places and those were originally a bit more restricted to the online world but very fast they moved to the offline world and that was a game changer. Sure. And then how is it in Europe? You know, has, has Europe been, uh, you know, kind of overcoming the issues that they had a couple of years ago? And then, you know, just specifically in Spain, you know, how is that? You know, because I'm, I'm only asking because I think I spoke to you a couple couple of weeks ago. I actually traveled to Spain, you know, had a really good time, um, but, you know, didn't really hang out in the tech ecosystems, you know, went through the more of the touristy areas. So maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, about Spain and, um, you know, that region as well and just kind of how that's mm. that's evolving and then just Europe in general. Yeah, well, I mean, we as a as a as a company, we have a global as a as a company, we have a global um, global investment approach. So sure. we are based in Asia, and we obviously have a lot of Asia exposure, and we're in China, so we have a lot of exposure to China. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we look at everything globally. So um, in the last year, I actually made quite a few investments in um, in Europe, and particularly made a few investments in um, in Spain. So the the tech ecosystem um, in Europe is obviously not as developed. Um, and, uh, and there's certain reasons for that, no? that mm-hmm. like you talk about Europe, but Europe is a group of countries. And uh, even if the European region is the largest market in the world, you don't have the same level of um, of uh, unification that you have in other parts of the world. Yeah. You have different languages, you have different vendors, different providers, like everything is quite fragmented from that, from mm-hmm. that point of view. The regulations help out a lot, but yeah. um, but for certain types of businesses, still does not have the way that the approach that you have in a market like us sure. or china where you can get like 300 million users a billion users with the same language the same payment systems the same logistics mm-hmm. is is very 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 fragmented and um and, and that creates a challenge for uh, for companies that want to that want to scale and become relatively large you know? then i i have a feeling sometimes in europe that uh, so in europe we don't talk about venture capital we talk about risk capital. So whereas yeah. in certain markets, you think more about the potential um, return of taking mm-hmm. that, uh, like embarking yourself in this in this journey. Sure. In um, in Europe, still the, the the risk perception is relatively high, no? and, and that's something that is slowly changing and, mm-hmm. um, and is changing for uh, for the better. No? We have a yeah. we have a list uh, a Spanish company that was listed in Nasdaq a couple of weeks ago. We have another unicorn. Our company became a unicorn also like in, in the last month. Yeah. So to a certain degree, um, the fact that the, the, this, this current economic downturn happened made the cost of opportunity for, for talent to start companies um, sure. lower. So there's more people building companies right now. And, um, and it, there is a, a very strong competitive advantage because this talent mm-hmm. that is, is very, very cheap. Like the access to talent in Spain is... is super affordable it, it happens in other parts of of, of yeah. um of europe too no but i have more exposure to 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 spain you have people that have experience managing uh, international teams across multiple mm-hmm. time zones uh, different cultures etc so that makes it a very very interesting uh, area I'm, I'm actually very positive about um what could come from uh, from europe in, in the yeah. years ahead i think one of the key things is decide that they need to look at the world in a bit more global way Sure. And, um, and realize that that opportunities, um, sometimes your, your next market might not be the one that is next to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about that strategic move could be quite a, quite, quite interesting. Yeah. And I think a lot of the people that are more, you know, risk 
risk friendly, you know, most of them probably, would you say most of them are still leaving Spain um, because of the, you know, the perception of risk capital, you know, you know, even your family, right? You guys are a little more conservative. Uh, look, my family's the same, right? My dad worked for the government, you know, for 25 years. My mom was a nurse. So, you know, everything that I did, my parents thought was really risky, you know, and uh, I pretty much did every, I did the opposite of everything that my parents advised me to do. And, and I'm happy that I did. I mean, I listened to them about a lot of things, but, um, you know, with my career, you know, not to like put my parents on blast publicly on the internet. Um, I love my parents, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, look, I love my parents, you know, and I, and I'm grateful for, uh, my upbringing and just an amazing childhood. But um, a lot of times too, you have to, you got to make your own destiny. Right. And I think it's interesting because I had an uncle that was like the poster child, you know, he, he was an engineer. He got his, uh, he got his master's and then he worked at a very stable company for like 30 years, you know? So um, the reason why I moved to New York, uh, I think one time when I didn't even have a job was because um you know, the, the potential, you know, the potential opportunity that, and you're betting on yourself, right? Even if, did you have a job lined up when you moved to China or you just uh, move there and try to figure it out? No, no. I mean, I came here to build a company. Okay, I, I didn't have a job. So you didn't um, have a job. I didn't have a job. Uh, yeah. I actually changed my destination two mm -hmm. weeks before, like one week before landing in China, I changed my destination. So originally I was moving to Shenzhen, which is relatively warm weather, mm -hmm. and I arrived in Shanghai and it was snowing. Sure. So I didn't even have the right clothes to, to, to <laughs> land in China. So, I mean, the, the story of coming here was a bit like, I mean, I survived it, no? And whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever does not like destroy you, makes you stronger. Yeah. And that's, that's what happened, no? That created sure. this feeling of resilience that, mm -hmm. now we need to make it happen. It needs to, it needs to be something that, uh, that I want to do. So from that point of view, Mm -hmm. That was a that was a great experience, and uh, yeah. and and it it allowed me to 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 have like this certain freedom. To once you are in an uncomfortable situation, you know, okay, uh, I just need to find something, and and that that helped me to learn a lot by doing exploring mm -hmm. things and uh, and not be really tied to anything specific, which I think was yeah. great to be able to change the perceptions of uh, what you wanted to do i did yeah. i did have like some projects so i then came came totally empty-handed when i was moving basically said okay i'm gonna let everybody that i know um yeah. know that i'm gonna be here in case there's anything i can do to help out sure. and um and that was how i had like my first projects that allow me to learn by doing explore mm -hmm. opportunities and um and eventually connect with the with the ssb community that was yeah. uh being part of that uh being part of that um of that uh, that very dynamic ecosystem of people trying to to build things help me connect with uh, with um, with the founder of China Accelerator uh, wow. ten years ago. Yeah. And um and then originally I joined as a mentor mm -hmm. of um of the program and I got involved into into the into the process. Um, I was building my own companies, had some success. I, I raised a small fund, started to make some uh, some investments. Uh, with that things went relatively okay. But mm -hmm. uh, but I did realize that I was missing really the the startup, the, the building process, and 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 be sure. able to get more more my, my hands dirty to to mm -hmm. to to do things. I like roll my sleeves and, and get get yeah. to build these type of things. No? And it's so, just when you're in that community, there's so many startups. They're trying to do so many things. They're always uh, managing a never-ending to-do list, right? So if you can come in and help some of those startups. Uh, you can just learn by doing, and then eventually you can probably charge people for services, right? Once you become an expert at SEO because you did it for free, now you have an SEO company, right? And mm -hmm. same thing if you know how to do prototypes. Um, and I do this sometimes too, just as a as a fun little side gig. You know, I help people with their pitch decks, and and um, and then you know, I've just learned over the years how to build a prototype, and that's a skill, you know. And um, I, I can imagine, you know, what what are some of the skills that you picked up by doing? Uh, maybe in your early days when you just kind of immersed yourself in the community. Well, I mean, I I brought already I brought already a few skills that were directly mm -hmm. applicable. So sure. um, as a, as an engineer, I was always really good at fast prototyping. Yeah. So building things really fast was something that uh that uh, like hack something together. Yeah. Something that I, I I was doing even when I was back back in school. That was one sure. of my of my hobbies. No, and mm -hmm. uh, and, and and then like I also spent some time working in in medical devices, which is. Oh, nice. You could say that is on one stream is the fast prototyping where you want to test things really fast, but at the end of the day, you cannot deliver a, a, any medical device that is not tested on every single 
area that could fail. No? Yeah. And um, so like also being very detail oriented and, and be able to find um, like issues in uh, in products or uh, or be able to to find um, like bugs or, or things that might break. That was also something that uh, that was really good. So come in and say, hey, I have those skills. And um, mm-hmm. I also did some work on, on product as a lot of medical devices or medical systems, yeah. they will require multi-stakeholder. So you've got the doctor, you have the patient, you have the family, you have the nurses. There's so many angles mm-hmm. that you need to consider yeah. that, um, that you can have a really good, functionally valuable product that nobody uses because it's scary or because it's not easy to use or because it doesn't support whoever's agenda. So sure. bringing that, that was really good. What I think was really great for me was to, to apply those skills Mm-hmm. In the, in the in the actual Chinese market, sure. and uh, and be able to get a very deep understanding, uh, hands-on understanding on how different things work here, and um, and be able to fail and, uh, and 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 learn with direct interaction with the uh, with the market. That was really was what was great. No? So mm-hmm. I get to travel, to explore areas, to um, work in different uh, industries, to, to to test things in a real environment. And yeah. um, so that that was really what uh, more, more than picking up new skills, it was more about localizing those skills because that's that's what happens in a, in a, in China. Your mm-hmm. your existing skills are obviously a competitive advantage, but believing that everything that you know how it works is going to translate and transfer directly to this market is what makes a lot of companies that come from I mean outside to to fail here. I mean you need to be a sure. bit more humble and understand that that. When f- certain things are done differently in China, mm-hmm. it's not because there's no skill for it. Yeah. Because there's so many situations where there's actually a lot of skill. There's probably a reason behind. So when when I came here, a lot of the websites were designed was actually from a from a from a Western design perspective, mm-hmm. they were really bad. Yeah, everything was crammed and there was like a lot of flashy lights um, everywhere. But if you understand how was the internet back in the day. And you understand the density of information that, that Chinese mm-hmm. people is used to get when they read a book, um, you'll you'll realize that it's actually not that it's not that bad. It's just that to be able to 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 walk on your customer's shoes, the first thing mm-hmm. that you need to do is you need to take away yours. You take out yours. And that was a key thing. Like you look into a, a, a book, the English version could be like this, the, the Chinese version could be like this. And, and it's the same content. It's just that the density of information that, that Chinese language has is yeah. very high. So a lot of Chinese people is used to handle that density of information. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that doesn't look as, as, uh, as bad from, a, sure. from, a, from their perception. You know, I'd love to just unpack uh, the regions of China, you know, and just kind of understand a little more about the ecosystem. So you're in Shanghai. You know, just tell me the dynamics of the different regions. I mean, I can imagine some of the... There's just polarizing differences between some of the the regions, right? So, can you just unpack the ecosystem? Like, you know, biggest differences between Hong Kong and Shanghai, and you know, other regions uh, of that area, especially with the tech ecosystem, and then with the innovation ecosystem. I have people in my program that um, that are in Hong Kong, but you know, people have just told me that that there's just so much opportunity uh, in mainland China. The challenge is, you know, with the platform that I'm building, right? People don't use People don't use WhatsApp. People don't use Zoom. People don't use Facebook. So, um, there you have. From my understanding, if if I really want to build what I'm building and make it hyper local to mainland China, I really need to translate it into like all of the the tools and and platforms that they use there. Um, that's that's my initial perspective. If I were to you know kind of build you know what I'm building there, but you know would love to learn your perspective on on that. Uh, observation and then just in general how the tech ecosystem is spread out all through uh, China and then maybe even like some some other parts of Asia. Mm. Well, I mean, I could get really really granular on, on that. That's basically my my <laughs> my day to day. Nobody. Yeah. If you think because, about no, because it, I'm a... I think it's important because I'm you know I'm all the way in New York. A lot of other people in the audience, uh, they're you know some of them are in the U.S., some of them are in Europe. Um, so we don't, you know, that's the thing, right? We don't know the granular details of the hyperlocal environments, right? We, we read stuff mm. in the news and we talk to friends on, on Slack, but um, you're there in the weeds, you know, you know exactly what's happening kind of like in that, in that region. So, you know, I think that'd be really helpful if you have any insights on that. Yeah, well, I mean, 
there's definitely a very big difference between uh, between mainland China and, uh, mm-hmm. and and everything else. Like the mm-hmm. fact that uh, that you have uh, um, certain limitations. So if you are in one side of the firewall and you are in the the other side of the firewall. Yeah. Things would be things could be very different. So the sure. payment systems are different. The social networks are are different. The common habits here are are very are very different. And and Firewall is a is a limitation. No mm-hmm. question asked about a, about that. But a lot of these solutions that are that are hyper local in China, they have a, something that makes them very unique. They are extremely localized and they are mm-hmm. they are large enough. Sure. The volume of business that that some of these companies have in China uh, doesn't make them doesn't does not they don't have to to expand anywhere else to be able to reach the That's volume crazy. to be able to go public. Yeah, there's so, just so many people. Yeah, like well. I was looking through something like I think right now 50% of the global e-commerce is happening in in, in mainland China. Wow. So like I mean as an e-commerce company mm-hmm. if you have a market where you have 50% of the global e-commerce market at your fingertips mm-hmm. and um, and you know there's certain barriers of entry because even if, if foreign companies can operate in the in the e-commerce space here mm-hmm. then um, it is just different that you'll have to integrate uh, it's not just the payments; it's also the the, the logistics systems will work yeah. will work differently. The user experience that you have to create will be very different. The way you display your products could be could be very different. Yeah. There's so many things that could be different that sometimes. Yeah, you know, one, one thing I'll say too. This this reminds me of something before I forget. So the UI. So I spoke to a friend of mine that was from mainland China. And uh, you know how, like, when you look at Google and you look at some of these websites, right, there's a lot of white space. It looks really clean, you know, like flat design, right? Um, in China, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is my feedback um, that I got. So in China, you know, they, they want to re- use up all of the real estate. So like none of the space is wasted. So for us, like you and I, you know, especially you're at the accelerator, right? Like all the, all the apps and websites need to be beautiful, right? It needs to be like minimal design. Um, but the feedback I got was in China, it's like it, the websites look very, very busy because they want to make use of like every single pixel of real estate. Is that is that something you've noticed as far as kind of the well, design? I mean, that, that, that's what used to happen. That was what, what used to surprise. So yeah. it, it's not so at the end of the day, what people want is something that is valuable for them. Yeah. So value is something that uh, that is very relative. So sure. design has an element of value mm-hmm. as as much as it is usable. And, and, and practical. So like yeah. UI and UX are, are they kind of go hand in hand, but yeah. you can have something that, that is from a UI perspective is beautiful, mm-hmm. but from a UX perspective is horrible sure. and, um, and it's difficult to use. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, usability is critical. But I think that that, that approach is, I mean, today websites in China are actually not very relevant. Mm-hmm. Most of the, 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 the internet in China is mobile. China is a mobile first, and for a lot of things, it's a mobile only type of, uh, of platform. Even yeah. for me, as a foreigner, I just don't remember. I mean, most of my interaction with the Chinese internet, which I have every day, multiple times, mm-hmm. happens through mobile. Yeah. So I don't remember last time. So when I do grocery shopping, I'll do it on my mobile phone. When I do, yeah. when I buy anything on online, it's gonna be in my in my mobile phone. If I like almost any transaction that I work on, I do it on my phone. So if you look at that uh, from from that perspective, yeah. I think that the UX and the UI of Chinese apps is just far superior to the, the UX and the UI that you have in, in, in Western apps. Sometimes sure. I actually feel a bit frustrated when I have to use some of the some of the Western uh, apps. Yeah. I feel frustrated because sure. I, I find there's, there's sometimes so many like 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 um, like walls and, and so yeah. many friction points yeah. that that in a very so Chinese market is extremely competitive. So sure. anything that creates friction. It's very, very competitive. Anything that creates friction will basically be a killer. Yeah, you, so need, you need to, to achieve sure... whatever goal you're trying to achieve. It needs to happen in maybe one step. Yeah. Versus now, you know, some of these apps that you, you know, use in, in, in the U.S. or other countries, it's like just to change a setting or just to change something, you got to maybe tap four times, right? But you're, you're saying in China, because it's so competitive, um, it needs to it needs to literally just happen immediately. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and Chinese Chinese app developers and, and are, are masters of data driven decisions. Yeah. So I mean, there's a I remember like one of my friends. He so he built a couple of companies, exited in China, mainland China. Mm-hmm. He exited both of them, and, uh, and then for his third company, he wanted to build a company in India. Uh, India is another like pretty large um, data like 
mobile first and mobile only market. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's large. Southeast Asia is another relevant market, but Southeast Asia has the same issue that Europe has. There's a lot of fragmentation. And, mm -hmm. and so this is even is even more difficult because it's basically a bunch of islands. There's so many mm -hmm. islands that even even commune makes things a bit more more difficult. But India is it's a relatively large market. Uh, it's early, and and some of the the way that the Indian market is developing is way the internet market and cyber market is developing is way closer to the way the Chinese market developed back yeah. in back in the day. No? So he built a company in a, in a, in India, mm -hmm. and um, because. China has so much talent uh, and skill in in terms of uh, of mobile app development and, and the UX element of of it. They were running things in languages they didn't know, mm -hmm. and um, just based on data. You have yeah. enough users and you start testing in a very systematic way. You can get apps very 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 solid that actually work extremely well with uh, with uh, concepts that sometimes are, are are relatively foreign. So I remember him telling telling a story. Now we had a we had a, with our program with our, the companies in our in our batch. They he came to share share a bit about a data driven um, design and data driven uh, product management. And he was sharing a story about about how India has a lot of languages. So even if India is a large market, there's a lot of small languages um, internally. And although English is spoken in um, in the more educated uh, group of uh, of people commonly spoken, in certain parts of the population, English is not as common. But they had in this app, which was targeting mass market, they had all the all the like local languages plus English. So speaking English is a sign of status. If you have your apps in English, it um it will make you oh you so you speak English well, so you have like better education etc. So they ran a test. They saw that a lot of the, the the data showed them that a lot of the users they changed the usage pattern of the app once they changed to English. So they have a usage level. They change to English and the usage level goes down. And, uh, and they realized that the problem was that they were having the app in English to look better, um, but then they couldn't use it because they couldn't understand, actually. So sure. by, re by removing English as an option, mm -hmm. usage of the app basically like triple. Yeah. And that's something that they found because they literally just use the data to, to, mm -hmm. to try. So the data showed them something. Um, that took them to have some customer interviews and, uh, sure. and see how people use the product. And mm -hmm. that, that those customer interviews told them, okay, there's an issue here. So let, let's try this. They tried and it worked perfectly. So like these type of things are, are so embedded in, um, and, and some people will look at this and say like, hey, why don't you have English? That's, that's a good, that's bad product. You're yeah. making the product worse. Well, that's not true. They're actually making the product more valuable and better yeah. Because since there's no option for English, there's no pressure of changing the, the the app into into English, and then you can continue using the product. Yeah, I think. Look, you, you're an expert at this, but this is what I feel too, right? I mean, it's uh, it goes goes back to Henry Ford, right? If you if you keep asking the customer what they want, you know, they're gonna they're just gonna ask for faster horses, right? So, how many times do you see these founders? Um, just not listen to their customers and just try to make better judgment based on the data. I mean, because a lot of times, you know, to your point, you can't just ask your customers what they want because half the time they don't even know what they want, right? <clears throat> um, if you ask them, they're like, hey, just give me faster horses. They don't even know about an automobile, right? So hmm. um, is that is that a common thing where they just focus on the data and, um, and you know, really just use their instincts to, to make the product decisions? I mean, you have to a, a lot of times, right? No, we always we always tell them that your gut will start and your mm -hmm. and data will decide. Yeah. So it doesn't matter who who I mean, if the data says something is wrong, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But yeah. uh, but but most of the most relevant breakthroughs mm -hmm. happen through conversations. Okay. Yeah. So we always say, hey, conversations are very important, and you mm -hmm. hopefully you'll. So I mean, this this company was doing was identifying potential areas for interviews. There mm -hmm. is like fifty million dollars, like. I mean, it was like a two-time serial entrepreneur, um, yeah. one exit to Baidu, one exit to Alibaba. Wow. I mean, he got like $50 million uh, with a napkin um, from Tencent to, to launch a company. So like, he didn't have any, any problem in terms of, uh, of scale or access to, yeah. to, to data. And he still he continued working on, on, uh, on, on customer conversations to be able to mm -hmm. get insights that they never thought. Because... Data will tell you. Data will not tell you why something's wrong. 
they just yeah. will tell you something here is is is, is funny or something here mm-hmm. is not a, is not is not working um well but you have to then go and find out and yeah it's very difficult that customers will tell you the solution so you get you go to a problem uh, assumption and, and problem hypothesis and from there you'll start having like solution assumptions or solution hypotheses that you want to prototype and test um yeah. as simple as possible so for mobile apps relatively simple just build up a, like a a b test where you have a g- control group and you you liberate this new function to a set mm-hmm. of a set of users and and then you track uh, behavior within the groups and also the previous behavior that the that the users um, that the users had so and if it shows the data shows that it works then it works this yeah. is a very very common thing and um and it actually applies to everything so like having this empathy of, of communication works with uh, your customers with your partners with your um with your investors like mm-hmm. so many times with, with investors like listening is a very 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 valuable skill and and sure. how to actually extract information without guiding people because mm-hmm. you can very easily guide people so you need to be very open um for for everyone to criticize your, yeah. your product so if you very upfront uh, let people know what you're doing mm-hmm. in, in they might somehow change the way they, they talk with you because they might not be willing to hurt your feelings so it's always better to be as agnostic as possible yeah. um, during these conversations. So ideally, people doesn't know that you're talking exactly about this thing. That's but a good feature- point because the data the data is also qualitative, right? So the qualitative is really the conversations. And then I think one thing I'll say too is you have to break it up into different personas, right? Because one persona may be uh, a married couple and then another persona may be a millennial and then a Gen Z. And I, each of them, like you said, right, have different have different workflows. Um, and then I think that's a good point. When you put together the survey, you need to make sure that you're not leading them on, right? And yeah. like forcing them to kind of say the answer that you want them to say, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of surveys. No, I think that uh, that qualitative quantitative data, it's, 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 it's valuable um, yeah. as part of an experiment. Sure. But, uh, but I do believe in conversations, um, okay. conversations that are open as much as possible, particularly for mm-hmm. early stage they're fundamental yeah. and you can find so many surprises mm-hmm. that uh, that could potentially change everything even yeah. as what you said no i mean you define different customer segments and you could potentially uh, like when you look at data aggregated um averages in general are not very relevant so when you're able to create yeah. like some segmentation you will potentially identify that the specific type of customer that converts faster that be, that's more loyal that is less price sensitive etc so if that customer today is, is working well and is a big enough segment, it could be potentially good to spend a bit more energy on, on growing on, on that stage. And, um, sure. and then in parallel, trying to figure out, okay, what can you do with another, with a different segment? Yeah. And then walk me through, you know, how you, you know, formalize your role at SOSP. So I think you, you immersed into the culture and the ecosystem and it uh, looks like you were helping some of the startups and then, and then they had an opportunity for you to um, to, to help run the accelerator. Well, I mean, uh, it was I think that I mean there was a couple of times in the in the past before I decided to join mm-hmm. uh, four years and a half ago okay. uh, full time. Um, there were a few few opportunities for me to join, but well, things didn't work out well. Sure. I was running my fund, then I was doing another startup, so it was not the right time. And, and I was like, there was kind of like in between things. Yeah. I was helping one of my friends. That was taking his company public. Um, the company was more in the mm-hmm. in the traditional business space, and I said, "Okay, I'll help you with the transformation of the company and and, yeah. and with the pitch to 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 the uh, investment bankers for the mm-hmm. IPO." But um, but I really want to like do something that is a bit yeah. more like I, I really want to go back to launch things, and sure. um, and I realized that that was the most interesting part of my of my job. Mm-hmm. So yeah. no problems talking with the bankers, but not my not the thing that I, I like the most um, in, t- in comparison with working with small ideas that could turn into something something amazing. And we, we, I remember we launched a project that went from zero to a million dollars in, in, in revenue in, in seven months. Wow. And we were running that with like two people and, and like some of my time. And mm-hmm. I thought, this is what I like. I mean, this is what really um, like makes me jump out of bed every single mm-hmm. every single day. And, uh, and the transformation is interesting. But having to once a company reaches stage with a few hundred employees, yeah. so much, uh, so much 
culture that is more like a standard culture yeah. that, that that was that was not my <clears throat> my my that's, thing so that's a good point i actually i think the ceo of dig was on this week in startups and um i think he's running a fund now but he said the same thing he's like look i love the beginning parts when you're building the product you're prototyping and you're just kind of creating something but then once you get to you know employees you're really just focusing on culture you know you're hiring firing employees um there's more there's more infrastructure right so it's not as for some people it's not as exciting so i think you're the same way i think i'm the same way too i don't think i would be as excited um you know trying to pick out which air conditioner which air conditioner unit we need to put into the building or uh, you know, what color the floor should be, but I'd rather focus on the product and, and uh, look at the data, right? Look and see, look and see how, how fast the app is growing and look at the insights and, and focus on the customer experience. Um, so I think I'm, I think I'm the same way. Um, yeah. And then, you know, so then let's talk a little more about SOSV. So then you, you had a couple opportunities before we talk about SOSV. I'm also interested about the fund that you started because I actually started an emerging manager accelerator, a fund first time fund manager accelerator. So always excited to hear about uh, fund managers, how they got started and then how they raised capital. Um, and then how did you deploy the, uh, the capital across, you know, the portfolio? Yeah, well, I mean, the, I mean, that, that, those two opportunities to join SSB eventually led for me to join to replicate exactly. Um, so joining SSB where is an accelerator VC gets yeah. you the, the advantage of, being um early stage investor mm -hmm. and at the same time being very hands-on yeah. so that was one of the things that i missed when i was running my my fund um sure. so that originally started so when i was mm -hmm. when i was building uh, my initial companies here mm -hmm. i was um i was potentially exploring um raising some capital for these companies but uh, yeah. i i i thought okay i mean i i will raise money once i have something that is worth funding sure. and um and in that process um I connected with uh, with uh, with some of uh, with some people that was in the in the space, and um, and eventually, we kind of reached the the, the 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 conclusion that there was a actually a really big opportunity um, investing in early stage mm -hmm. Chinese startups. Back in the day, it was very very there was a lot of investment. So the, the Chinese venture capital market started instead of starting from the from the bottom mm -hmm. and, uh, and small investments, it actually yeah. started the opposite way. So the initial, I mean, understanding venture capital as a subset of uh, of the asset class of private private equity, mm -hmm. the initial private equity investments in China were literally very large companies that were either state owned and then were going privatized, or relatively large companies that were managed um, not very efficiently. So you could mm -hmm. actually have venture capital returns mm -hmm. with private equity investments by investing in those companies. Um, working in, in all of them just to streamline the process, making sure everything was clear, and then packaging them properly and take them public. Okay, but so because it wasn't starting that way, people was going um, basically downstream as they were less pre-IPO deals. Mm -hmm. They were working, okay, let's do bigger deals, bigger deals, because there were enough companies looking for for that opportunity. Yeah. So I saw that app, and uh, so I partnered with um, with a fund uh, back in Spain, and they became my anchor. Oh, nice. So okay, so they I were think a the fund, key... and then they just kind of were an LP in your your microphone, exactly. I guess, right? So and how much that were you raising the... for the fund? So I was raising five mil. Okay. And um and uh so and and that was that was the initial anchor. Then I got yeah. other people. So I connected with people. I connected with some of the LPs in the fund. Yeah. Um, that also said to bag me individually. I connected with some some high net worth. Uh, mm -hmm individuals in um, in the fund and, uh, and we're always trying to look for deals mm -hmm. where we were invited to the deal. so at the beginning we're trying to be a bit more aggressive in terms of leading yeah. deals but sure. um that uh, I mean, we actually it was not bad we had a we had a deal that did really really well we yeah. had an opportunity to exit the company with a 40x return um two years into the deal yeah. But um, but the founders didn't want to sell, and, and it was a long story that could lead for a whole podcast, just mm -hmm. talking about how this became <laughs> horrible. But it was yeah. a, it was back in the day the largest social network for football fans in China, and um, and uh, we helped them get partnerships with football teams, football clubs from uh, yeah. from Europe. So things went really well, but there was some clash with a uh, um, state-owned media, etc. Eventually everything we should have sold, but we did sure. not, and it could have been like an amazing return. Mm -hmm. but that didn't happen so that that's a case where we we took a lead in that company 
but yeah. we could bring in something that that made a difference for the company. So yeah. we're able to get them like like a swag from the teams, partnerships with the teams, and lots of things that for them were very difficult to acquire, mm -hmm. and for other people in the ecosystem were also a barrier of uh, of entry. Then we we started to work with companies where with deals where we were invited to the deal because we could bring in something on the table. Yeah. So leverage a lot. I think very important for emerging markets to to treat your uh, emerging managers to treat all your LPs as mm -hmm. as angel investors. Sure. So work with your LPs to see well, they are looking for potential return, but they're also having some interest yeah. in um, in what you're doing. So communicating with uh with them. One of my LPs actually. Um, he was a was an angel investor, relatively famous angel investor in Europe. He won in 2009 to 10. He won like uh, angel investor of the year in uh, in Europe, and he developed a very interesting methodology for exits. And and the same way that you work for with a client for sales, mm -hmm. uh, thinking about planning for exits. No, and, and we he he was actually really like very solid um, coaching us in terms of how to work with sales uh, mm -hmm. for a. Uh, for, uh, for the portfolio companies, once they reach a stage where the founders were starting to think, okay, maybe that's 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 the way, that's the way to to go. I'm actually but, um, taking this down as a note. So that's that's good advice. So treat all your LPs as angels, and and how could they do that? Just involve them closely on the deal and give them all the diligence instead of just uh, have them invest in your fund, right? Because with angels, you're giving them the memo and you're giving them all the details of your of your thesis about the company. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, also have conversations for them to understand what can they bring on the table in um, in some it. cases. They might not be interested in getting directly on the deal, but get yeah. some exposure to it. Um, yeah. learn, about the, learn about the industry, uh, help you identify opportunities that maybe you haven't thought about. And, um, because my, my thesis was trying to find businesses that could have a cross-border um, opportunity sure. between Europe, where most of, my, most of my LPs were in Europe. I have a couple of them in the U.S., I think mm -hmm. a couple of in, in, in Latin America, but yeah. most of them were in Europe. So the point was always like what Chinese companies have a China-Europe type of, um, of angle and try to focus on, on, on that area. So having a lot of these was coming mostly from, uh, from, from the LPs. So mm -hmm. having that communication with them was, um, was really valuable. And then sure. having conversations with them, um, that was like critical in that, uh, yeah. in, uh, in that case. So having that communication, very important. You also build trust. Uh, you learn. I got a lot of support from uh, from them, and and I also think a lesson that I learned is track record is everything for uh, yeah. because raising your first fund is is uh I mean, I'm not gonna say super easy, but it's mm -hmm. I think it's is easier than yeah. raising. It's way easier than raising follow-on funds because you're raising the first fund on a promise, but then you yeah. need to show track record for the sure. second and the third fund, and the second might be okay if you have like like book value if you're able to show that the mm -hmm. companies are actually raising funding and, and yeah. you have like, but you need to realize those returns. Yeah. So being able to have early exits where you can prove actually um, liquidity and, and distribution to the LPs, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's very, very important. Yeah. Um, that's my experience. Maybe other people has different, different experience where you say, well, you know, I mean, I, I cash enough to be able to pay back to the, to the mm -hmm. LPs and I still maintain my position here to continue having a bit more, uh, a bit more growth. So I had a, I had a couple opportunities when companies raised at valuations uh, north of 100, 150 million dollars. I had opportunities to to exit and uh, mm -hmm. we didn't um, because sure. there was obviously a potential extra feature um, mm -hmm. on on those companies. And then well, one of them particularly crashed dramatically, and we could have done we could have done in that case a 100x return in, in three sure. years. So, so when you said that, that was, it had an opportunity to exit at a hundred million, they just did. The, you just advised the company not to take the exit opportunity. Is that no, no? I had a, so one of the so um, the company closed a fifty million dollar round. Sure. And, uh, and some of the investors offered to buy out some Got of it. the because when, when I invested in the company, they were mm -hmm. not even online. So I invested sure. on, on not not paper but prototype. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sure. um, it was a model that one of my LPs had a lot of experience. Uh, he built one of the one of the largest companies in Europe yeah. running that uh, running that model. So um, I thought about. Uh, I mean, it was not a full exit for the company. Would mm -hmm. have been an early exit. Yeah. So if if I if at that time I could have sold like half of the shares yeah. that I had in the, in that company, that could have been a 50x return overall wow. on on the deal. Realized on three years mm -hmm. after investment, and still could have the potential of the upside. 
for the remaining part. So sure. that uh, that was something that uh, that as a as an early manager, I think it's important to show yeah. that 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 you have because this there's the business of investing, but at the end of the day, every business is about sales. Mm -hmm. So you need to make sure that you you consider the exit as an opportunity. And um, I, at the stage that we were, I thought that was quite important to do. Sure. No, that's, that's really helpful. And, you know, emerging managers, it's just a really huge thing now in America. I mean, there's there's thousands of uh, emerging managers, right? And what I learned is just a couple of years ago, uh, maybe 12 years ago, I was talking to a, a manager now that is, is on Fund 5. So very, very more senior. A lot of their capital is coming from institutions. Um, but, you know, the, this person was just saying 12 years ago, you could count on your hand how many other funds there were. Now there's thousands. And because, you know, there's so much of a lower barrier for first-time fund managers to get started and, and, and start a fund. They can, they can build a track record with angels. But like you said, even if you don't know real LPs, and even though you're saying that we should treat LPs like angels, you can just get a syndicate of angels. You can use angel lists. So how is that ecosystem evolving in, in East Asia? Are you seeing a lot more funds? I've actually got two funds in my emerging manager program that are, uh, that are in East Asia as well. But um, how are you seeing that ecosystem evolve on the fund side? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more. I mean, there's definitely more, uh, more, more, um, more like micro VCs sure. or new funds that that, that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, I think also, so that that process happened in China like uh, maybe five, seven, eight years ago, yeah. when um, when suddenly like the number of funds like exploded by one order of magnitude. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a lot of government government um, LP backing for a lot yeah. of the funds that had a massive disruption in mm -hmm. the in the ecosystem. But there's definitely I will not. I will. I will not say the growth is that big. Yeah. But uh, but there's there's definitely more and more um, early stage funds that um that are are happening. Most of them they have some uh, specific angle to to what they do. So I also see more specialization. There's a few emerging fund managers in like female specific area. There's more on the impact side of uh, of things. Uh, we also look just because a lot of my investments are in the in the enterprise and B2B software. We also see a few people that have strong experience in that area, and they understand that that particularly early stages of um of enterprise tech, um, good guidance makes a massive difference because sales cycles are very long, and um, feedback loops are also longer. And the opportunity to get feedback and conversations from your from your uh, conversation with your customers are also more difficult. Navigating organizations is also more complicated. So these these fund managers sometimes can make a big difference into yeah. um, into companies. No, at least when you're when you are like closing your first like five clients for enterprise, mm -hmm. the way you sell is very different than the way you when you're going to go from your first five to your next like 15, 20. Uh, because yeah. you're selling to a relatively closer group where you might have an internal champion that you mm -hmm. know directly. But as you grow, things need to need to evolve. No? And the way you, you manage the whole customer journey is, is very different. There's also a shift from sales to retention and make yeah. sure that you don't have churn and this great value into. So there's a lot of shifts and the organization needs to move. And mm -hmm. account management, besides like developing new accounts, so so those are quite quite interesting. We've seen also um, a few that are more specialized. Um, sure. So I personally like also to invest in traditional industries that are going through through digitalization and, mm -hmm. and, and technification. So we've yeah. also seen a few that focus on on logistics or manufacturing, uh, construction. Some some of these industries that are that are uh, that are like doing pretty pretty okay. Well, Good experience with some of these fund managers. They come with a very strong support element to mm -hmm. to their capital, and um, yeah. and I think that's that's great. Sure, no, that's great. And then you know, real quick, I know we got a few more minutes. So, um, SOSV, uh, maybe you can walk us through the structure, the criteria to get in, and then you know the the program, right? So it's like three four yeah. months, I guess, and then and then there's a demo day. So maybe just a quick quick overview yeah, on so, SOSV I mean, and how to get accepted. Yeah, SSB is a global VC. So we're we're a, we're a, um, actually US VC. We have right now almost 900, 900 million dollars under under management. Uh, we're very actively active investor, but all of our investments are matched with an accelerator. So we're a VC that provides support, and and yeah. for us, accelerators are the system that we can provide consistent, scalable support to our portfolio companies. No, and and also, the, these accelerators become the the onboarding to the platform 
where founders keep to work with us because we are not like traditional accelerators that they work with you for three, four, six months. We work with our companies forever. We have a more yeah. structured way to work with the companies during the first few months of, um, of our engagement through the, the, the cohorts that they, they work together, but then we continue working with the companies afterwards. So in terms of investment, there's three main, there's three main areas of investment that we have. So all of the, all of the SOSB accelerators are industry agnostic mm-hmm. and, uh, and geography agnostic. So it doesn't matter where we are, we are um, investing uh, everywhere. The location uh, has a connection with historical reasons or strategic reasons, but that doesn't mean that because we're based in Shanghai, we only invest in Chinese companies or Asian yeah. companies. We invest in companies everywhere. And the same happens to our colleagues uh, in Shenzhen uh, mm-hmm. for hacks or hardware arm or the New York and San Francisco for, uh, yeah. for, for biotech. And these are actually the three areas of specialization. Right. So we have um, biotech, hardware, and, and software. So for me, I'm more involved in the software um, software space where yeah. we have two main programs. One of them is for consumer internet, where we focus mostly on uh, on mobile first, mobile only type of markets. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of uh, a lot of like Southeast Asia, India, Middle East, uh, Latin America, etc. And then the one that I run from Shanghai is the is the enterprise and B two B software, which I mean basically is, is based on the fact that China is very very competitive. A lot of companies want to come to China to be able to sell or maintain their market share. And yeah. if they are not productive here, they will lose market share. So innovation sure. for them is critical. That's why a lot of companies run pilots in, uh, in China. And we have so many companies that are able to get their first customers in China. Oh, wow. Getting in um, from getting, I mean, getting into the programs mm-hmm. is actually closer to how most VCs work. The best way is to get a referral. Yeah. We have thousands of applications uh, every year as a, um, as, a, as, as programs, we're more venture capital with a platform than sure. an accelerator. Um, so we look at companies that, uh, that already have initial, um, for the software side, we're with companies that have a product ready, have some initial traction, mm-hmm. and their help is mostly on how can they scale. Yeah. So yeah. we work on scaling the companies. Uh, we have a strong focus on growth, mm-hmm. um, helping the companies uh, on the B2C side acquire users without having to pay for them. In yeah. the B2B side, getting uh, pilots and new clients uh, as fast as possible and in terms that will create a really good foundation. To be and able to make can, that happen. Well, I see this also being valuable. I think you hit on it a few seconds ago. Just corporates and other big startups that are just trying to expand in China. Um, you know, do you guys have like a services arm or other people that can help them if they really want to, you know, because a lot of people in, you know, people in New York and San Francisco, they just don't know the ecosystem. So are there support systems for, just general tech companies or just other entities to kind of try to immerse themselves um, in China? Or are you guys only interested in startups in, in China? No, we, we invest in companies from all over the world. I mean, we've Got invested. Yeah. Uh, so recently we've invested in two companies that mm-hmm. are based out of San Francisco. Okay. Uh, one company out of uh, um, Montreal sure. and, and a few companies from other parts of the world. So we invest in companies everywhere. Got um, it. Okay. They don't need to have a China angle. Yeah. But uh, but the fact is that once you start exploring China, mm-hmm. you always will find out the China angle. Sure. And, um, yeah. Because China is such a big market that even mm-hmm. if you are a niche, even if the Chinese market for you is a niche, yeah. that could be potentially really, really large. And and it's surprising how, how this, this could happen. So mm-hmm. uh, they, the companies don't need to be in China. They don't need to have a China angle, but we need to be able to help. Because for us, the help that we provide the companies is our risk reduction. So we reduce our risk by bringing the companies um, additional support that will help them achieve something faster. Yeah. And, uh, and the whole the whole service is actually end to end. So mm-hmm. even if the goal eventually is to scale faster, every single company that we invested that raised a CUSA, they did so with a business model that was different than the one they had when we originally invested. So sure. the first two weeks of the company, we really turn everything upside down and we look for opportunities, bottlenecks, areas that could be changed. And, uh, and as, as we find those opportunities for change, uh, we start experimenting, we start having ch- different conversations with, with customers and companies start finding breakthroughs uh, mm-hmm. during the first month where suddenly they realize, oh, maybe I can try this differently. And something suddenly works much better. We work on focus, be, be, be bringing best practices for scaling up, scaling yeah. up, like building the foundation for, for scaling up. That's kind of like very, very relevant for, for what we're doing. And um, there's a lot of companies that they, they want to come to China and they, sure. they, they 
come to a program because of that. But mm-hmm. there are companies that will use China as a way to um, as a way to potentially explore other markets or, or get get um, get kind of like a, a whole like redesign of, of what they do. Yeah, that was amazing. Hey, I know we're at time and. Uh, I know you're, you know, starting your, well, you're kind of way, you're kind of midway through your happy hour and, you know, I'm, I'm honored to, <laughs> to enjoy it with you. Uh, next time we'll be both drinking Cheers. beers in the same hour. Cheers with my coffee mug here. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but hope, uh, hope I either make it to New York. I mean, hope I either make it over there or you make it over here to New York and uh, we could do a beer in real, in real time. Definitely. Looking forward yeah. to that. Cool. Thanks for All right, the guys. Uh, yeah. invitation today. Yeah, thanks for coming in. I, I loved your story, and uh, you know, I learned a lot. So I appreciate your time. And um, Oscar, I might just give you a ring in a few minutes. I have a couple of questions for you um, after this call. If that's all right. Good. Well, I'm gonna be starting. A, I'm actually doing a, a keynote in like 20 minutes. So oh. if you take two minutes, it will work. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. uh, might not. Might not work. Okay. All right. We'll catch up later, and uh, we'll uh, we'll hang. You know, we'll we'll keep you posted in the ecosystem. Thanks for all your time. Okay. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day, good night, good afternoon.